Welcome to Dig It. This is Edge with my co-host, Corey Lynn of Corey's Digs. Hey, Corey, how's it going? Oh, it is going like a never-ending marathon all week, just bouncing from one thing to the next to the next. And, oh, my God, we have so much to cover. And I'm going to have to jam out a short article this week, or this weekend, rather, um, totally sidetracking the other thing I'm working on. Um, on top of the other thing that I had an epiphany on, and I asked you if you could look up some stats for me while I'm working on that. So it's just been crazy this week. Yeah, it has. And a lot of news coming out that we need to cover, or some of it we're going to cover today. Um, so I know that you have been telling our audience for the past couple of weeks about these angel stories. And I know that you wanted to point out one of them and read one of them this week, which I'm excited to hear about. Also, you've got some updates for us on the WEF and the ISO. You'll have to explain to everybody what the ISO is. I'm sure everyone's familiar with the WEF. And we're going to talk about COVID Unmasked 2020 and Beyond, a series that you published, uh, well, you um, you promoted on your site um, to, to direct people to this uh, series of, uh, you know, hour and a half documentaries of the whole COVID conspiracy. And I'm going to talk about contaminated COVID jabs and how they may open the door for a tsunami of lawsuits coming soon. Um, Also, I know you had a few things to say about this recent 60 Minutes episode on Five Eyes. (laughs) And uh, you've got to get, you're going to get into a farming update, has something to do with Walmart. And we're going to end end the episode with talking about the UN making some moves. And finally, uh, we have a new speaker in the house. I don't know how we're going to do this in an hour, dude. I just don't. <laughs> but I'm going to try and talk as fast as I can. Um, and it's hard to breathe through my nose. I, it's like allergy season here. I have just so sometimes I have to pause and catch my breath. Okay, so let's start with the angel story. So. I had had put out a request to send them in, you know, 550 words, no later than November 1st. And I was going to pick three to publish and and mail them a copy of my book and ask them to put, um, you know, what display name they would want, as well as give me their address so that, you know, if, if I end up publishing them, I can ship the book out. And so I... I'm blown away by the response I got. I got so many cool stories. I've been spending this last week reading the ones that have been coming in. And I still have more sitting in my email I haven't even gotten to yet. So what I've decided to do is I'm going to just, I'm going to grab like a handful to read every now and then in our podcast where I just pick one. And then I'm going to publish. So next week after the first, I'm going to publish some. I'm probably going to select more than three. And I don't know if I'm going to split it up into two separate articles, like two weeks in a row or what. But those people who I publish, I will get books out to. Um, Obviously, if you didn't include your address, that can't happen. And uh, so for those who did send me ones, though, with with emails, uh, just an email, I do have some of those that I've, I've selected for reading on the podcast. So this is the first one. 
So this one is by, and again, I don't know if last name is to be said or not. So instead of saying it, I'm just going to say the letter. So I'm going to say this is by Lisa Z. And this is sharing a moment with an angel. It was a monsoon season and a heavy rainstorm lifted in the late afternoon. The clouds were still very heavy with moisture, but the sun found a clearing. Everything was vibrant against the clouds and then a rainbow appeared. I asked my husband to drive into the mall parking lot, which was on a high point off the highway, so that I could capture a picture above the power lines. As he sat in the car, I walked about 50 yards to an opening where the rainbow was on full display. I stood there quietly and then noticed a man sitting on the curb, not but a few feet from me behind a large pine tree. He was wearing all white and had blonde hair. I wanted to let him know I had approached, so I said, isn't it spectacular? He never turned my way, but responded in the most beautiful and melodic voice saying, more than you know. His voice surprised me, but I was caught up in the moment and sort of dismissed it. I took a few pictures and turned his way to bless him, and he was gone. It wasn't more than a few seconds, and I didn't hear him get up and walk away. I got back in the car and, as always, took a preview of my shots. I couldn't believe what I saw. There were what appeared to be hundreds of perfectly round, bright spheres all around above below, and below and inside the rainbow. I sat there for a moment astonished and then gave thanks for what I knew in my heart was a special visitation and moment with an angel. I have attached the picture if you zoom in and I did zoom in on it. It's pretty cool. It's probably hard to see on the screen here, but this is a picture up on the screen of the rainbow shot. But look at the landscape with like the the mist and the clouds and everything. Isn't that cool looking? Yeah, it's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. And and so she says, interesting, I am writing this on the exact day I took the picture five years ago on October 13th. Oh, that neat. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. I like that. I like that. No coincidences. No, none. Very cool. I love hearing this and I can't wait to hear more. So yeah, you're going to have to make this like a frequent thing <laughs> on the podcast. I know. I know. Well, there's so many. So there's some great ones. Some are really short. Some are some definitely exceeded the 550 words, guys, but that's okay. I, I've <laughs> thoroughly enjoyed reading them. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So what else do we got up? Let's see so, here. We have the, the, well, the new series. Do you want to just, oh no, we're going to do that after. Okay. Ooh, let me clear my brain. So this is something I'm going to be writing up this weekend uh, because the WEF World Economic Forum if, if you click, so we have a tweet up that I tweeted the other day. And if you click on that, so you can see who shared this with me and up the, up the ladder there. Um, so the WEF apparently was granted immunities and privileges in Geneva because they're the, that's where their headquarters is. So not in the U S and I'm, and I'm looking into the other locations. They have six global offices, two of which are in the U.S. They do not have it here, which is probably how I missed this when I did my laundering with immunity report. I can't believe I missed this. So I'm going to be writing this up because there's some things that need to go along with this instead of just a quick little paragraph. But one of the things um, that's really important is, and, and I said this when I did that series uh, or the first two parts, I should say, of the series. I'm still working on part three. 
is that it's really important, and I even gave the keywords and how people can look it up in their own countries, uh, to look up the immunities and privileges in their countries because what we have going on is obviously the UN uh, is has it in all of them because it's worked baked into their treaties too. Right. But what we have is like in the U.S., you have the International Organizations Immunities Act. So we have this list of 76 organizations of which 20 plus is all UN, you know, half a dozen are OAS, and then you got the rest. And if you start looking at other countries, and I did give examples of a few uh, in my report that I did last year, that they have, they use the same words as far as immunities and privileges, but sometimes other words will attach to that. So whatever their act is or their legislation that they passed in their country, and then they'll list out their organizations, which is a major overlap to ours. So, but then they're also going to have some, some organizations that maybe are just, um, you know, where they're headquartered, let's just say hypothetically, they're headquartered in Canada, but they have offices in five other areas. And the only location they have those immunities is at their headquarters. So it's important that people in every country look this up, because I'll tell you what, I would love to compile a giant list, because mapping that out would show us a whole heck of a lot um, and so, so in this case, the WEF has it in, at their headquarters in Geneva, which is, uh, not good, not good. Because right. Immunities, we, and we should go over some of these immunities, like similar to the ones that you've just discussed with the UN and all of these agencies that have been given immunities since the forties, really, uh, by the U S but they all seem kind of similar, right? Yeah, definitely. You can you can go ahead and read those, but there's there's going to be a lot more to this in my article. But go ahead, you yeah, can point some of these out. Yeah, immunity from legal proceedings and enforcement of judgments, so you can't sue them. Immunity from taxation, immunity from Swiss entry and residence requirements, exemption from all personnel uh, personal services from all public services and from all military duties or obligations, freedom of communication, movement and travel, freedom to acquire, receive, hold, transfer and convert funds, currency and cash. So basically, the Swiss government will look the other way about anything and everything that they do, and you can't go after them for anything. Yeah, so, you know, when they're they're meeting and they're planning out their agendas against us, and they are um, talking about how they're going to move their funds and finances around, um, we can't get access to any of that information, and they're exempt from suit, so... So yes, and then in addition, and like I said, I'll be writing something up on that this weekend, but in addition to that, we have ISO, and I haven't even had two seconds to look into that yet, but I covered ISO in my recent space report I just published a couple of weeks ago, or a week ago, I have lost track, uh, and that's the international standards, so it's it's the messaging system. And that messaging system carries the data in financial transactions, which they just updated in i believe it was march uh this year and the biggest update to it is to incorporate more data so when you tell me you're moving um so you have the data points right you run the transaction from this bank to the next bank and and it carries with it this data it's a mess it's messaging system so 
the first thing I think of is, huh, a lot more data, social credit system, you know, that's convenient. And so I don't know how this, if the organization itself has immunities, I don't know how that might carry over when we're talking about another organization that's developed the platform or the software in order to incorporate that messaging. And so that's something I'm looking into. Yeah, because a lot of these organizations that have immunities, don't they, aren't they able to like, give some of those immunities to their partners and things like that? So well, that'd be interesting. So, so what I found with that is that is very specific to the uh, UN and OAS in their treaties um as far as well and also if you look at this is the bank for international settlements you look at their immunities they actually state in theirs that it can extend to the you know banks and financial institutions and agencies insurers that type of thing if they're working um you know with this uh, in, in a work-related manner, basically. Mm -hmm. And so I don't believe, though, with the other international organizations, um, that they have the ability to extend it to someone else. Okay. But I mean, the UN, <laughs> the UN, the OAS, and BIS, and the central banks, that's, that's a hell of a lot right there. So... But with ISO, ISO is really all about centralizing and what is it? Standardizing data, right? So how does this play in? You can imagine that they would have something to do with this um, reset of the financial system, right? Um, you know, well, they're very, standardizing they're very, it. Yeah, they're very involved with it. And so that came up when I when I went to verify the WEF um, on Geneva's list. I spotted ISO on there. And so I, this was just last night. I, I've like, but sorry, I forgot to mute my phone. I was just about to say, I've been on so many phone calls. <laughs> so once I get more information on that, I'll cover that as well. Um, okay. Yeah, not good. So, so moving on. We just published uh, the new series by Steve Miller, who put together this four-part series on uh, COVID Unmasked 2020 and beyond. And the it's broken into four parts, and the fourth part is all about solutions. And so, you know, any anytime we see, you know, we, we always promote other people's work. When they have good information and good work, we want to share it. So... Yeah, I mean, this was published on Children's Health Defense. I know that they did um, a podcast with him, interviewed him. It was great. And I think that, um, yeah, I think it's a great series. I watched parts of it, of each one of them. And yeah, lots of good info in there. Yeah, so definitely check that out. Awesome. And... Yeah, so I have I have something COVID related to get into. I'll try to move fast because I know we have a ton of topics today. But this is important because last week we had talked about, you know, lawsuits against Big Pharma and making any headway there and how the their immunity from liability doesn't really apply when it when they commit fraud on the disclosures about what's in the COVID jabs and when the COVID jabs are contaminated, right? And so I want to continue. Since, since we're on the topic of immunity. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. Oh, wait, I just want to mention, too, that 
after I get the WEF one written up, we'll cover it. We'll cover it in like next week's podcast, just so people don't feel like, oh no, I'm going to have to find it and read it. <laughs> yeah. God yeah. forbid. We'll definitely update you guys when yeah. Corey digs in. <laughs> but yeah, so segueing into the immunity and the COVID topics, tying them together, um, it's this discussion on liability for by Big Pharma, particularly Pfizer, because of their uh, lack of disclosures about what's in the COVID jabs. So I want to continue that conversation we started last week in light of recent information that's come out about DNA found in the COVID jabs. Well, just after our podcast last week, Steve Kirsch put out this tweet that went viral on the topic, and then he held a podcast to discuss it. So I'm going to read this tweet real quick. It says, you can now sue the mRNA COVID vaccine manufacturers for damages, and the FDA was required to take the COVID vaccines off the market. Why? Adulteration. The plasmid bioactive contaminant sequences were not pointed out to the regulatory authorities. It's considered adulteration. I just got off the phone with Professor Byram Brittle and Dr. Malone on this. And then he held a subsequent podcast um, with Dr. Byram Brittle and the um, genetics expert uh, Kevin McKernan, who originally discovered this. And so um, in the podcast, Kirsch, uh, Kevin McKernan, um, and uh, Byram, they all discussed these DNA plasmids in the vials of the Pfizer and Moderna COVID jabs, as well as the discovery that DNA plasmids in the Pfizer jabs had the SV40 enhancer in them. And we I have talk- a question. I have to interrupt. Are we talking in all batches or specific batches or... All batches that they, that they um, that he has studied, and okay. some of the batches have more contamination than others, so they they vary in contamination level. Okay, but they all have been positive with this contamination. Gotcha. So far, and um, so the SV forty and they have the SV forty enhancer in them, and we had talked about. McKernan's discovery on our podcast about four months ago when McKernan was calling for other labs to duplicate this work and, mm-hmm. you know, back back him up. And since then, several labs all over the world have studied this and confirmed that Pfizer's COVID jab is contaminated with DNA plasmids that are several orders of magnitude higher than the allowable amount of contamination. And the DNA sequence of the plasmids have the SV40 enhancer in them. And most recently, um, Health Canada confirmed, this is the regulatory agency in Canada has confirmed it too. And so for context, the way the mRNA is manufactured in these COVID jabs is by using these DNA plasmids, which are then supposed to be filtered out in the manufacturing process, but obviously we're not. And the reason why this is alarming is because the DNA plasmids binded with lipid lipo nano, lipid nanoparticles are much more robust and they're able to linger in the body and collect in key organs throughout the body 
and they create a much higher risk of the DNA plasmids actually integrating into the nucleus of human cells and altering human DNA. Okay, that's very alarming. The um, Also, number two, the SV40 enhancer has been proven to drive DNA straight into the nucleus of our cells within hours. And SV40 contamination, as we know from studying SV40 over the many years that it's been used, particularly in the polio vaccine, has been linked to cancer. Which SV40, that's the simian virus, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Yep. Now that it's been confirmed that the Pfizer jab has this DNA plasmid contaminant, McKernan and others are researching adverse events connected to the DNA plasmid contaminant. So what they're looking at and what they've actually already shown is a correlation between batches with the highest DNA contamination in them to batches with the highest reports of adverse events. So they're showing a correlation between the adverse events and the DNA contamination. And now they're taking a step further and taking tissue samples from candidates with adverse events to find if the DNA plasmid contaminants have actually been integrated into their cells, their human cells. So here's where it gets really interesting going back to this podcast is that um, McKernan showed how Pfizer submitted the DNA sequence and the map of this DNA plasmid showed here on the screen um, to all the regulatory agencies. And on the map, McKernan shows how the annotation of the SV40 sequence was omitted in Pfizer's submission. And he explains that this maps of the DNA sequence is not drawn out manually. What they actually do is they just plug in the DNA sequence into a software that paints the map of the sequence with the annotations. And so for the SV40 to have been admitted, that means someone must have gone into this software um, of the DNA map and intentionally deleted the annotation of the SV40 sequence. And so Health Canada, 100% committing fraud. And so Health Canada has confirmed that pharma companies are required to submit the entire map with all the bioactive genetic sequences. And that's not what was done here, thereby breaching the agreement. So the question is, where do we go from here? Because obviously the regulatory agencies clearly aren't going to do anything to protect the public from the dangerous contaminants. Uh, They could have done this all along for years now. I mean, like, but this is like the last nail in the coffin. They should be recalled, but we know that's not going to happen. So the next step is naturally lawsuits. And so um, it looks like this is going to open the floodgate for a tsunami of lawsuits. Um, A recent uh, Michigan lawsuit um, out of, yeah, lawsuit out of Michigan, this was back in August, Um, it may set a precedence for this because in the Michigan lawsuit, a judge denied manufacturers immunity in a case on contamination of a batch of remdesivir medication for COVID. So Mm. the judge said that this manufacturer didn't have immunity. Um, That was the, the, the immunity did not apply to contamination. Right. And so that might set a precedence, but 
Steve Kirsch is going to explore this topic more um, by, uh, you know, the topic of suing Pfizer over contamination in the podcast, plus the, the, the idea that Pfizer intentionally withheld information about what was in that DNA plasmid, the SV40 sequence. And he's going to talk about it with two COVID litigation lawyers um, this Friday. So uh, I'm sorry. So this actually Thursday, the 26th. So uh, when this podcast comes out on Friday, it will already be available on Rumble. Um, it's through the Vaccine Safety Research Foundation, and they have a Rumble channel that you can check out this podcast on litigation based off of this fraud by Pfizer and the contamination of the COVID jabs. Um, so people can find this um, discussion at VAC Safety, that's V-A-C safety.org, and you should be able to find that Rumble podcast discussing this potential for litigation and then also these people um, are also organizing a big covid litigation conference coming up next year in march and i'm sure they will deep dive into this topic but the last thing i want to say on it is that um, investors may already be clued in that a tsunami of lawsuits are coming down the pike because it appears that Pfizer's stock is dropping. It's been dropping over the past um, couple of years, um, but it seems kind of like that's escalating over the last nine months or so. So that might be kind of the writing on the wall for, um, you know, speculating that Pfizer is going to be in some illegal trouble, uh, big legal trouble coming down the road. I agree. So, so they haven't found anything with Moderna, huh? Just the Pfizer ones? Yes. No, they found they found the DNA plasmid contamination in Moderna. What they did not find was the SV40 sequence and that obvious omission by Pfizer of the SV40 uh. sequence. So that's the two differences. Um, there's more details on the differences between the two. The more clear-cut fraud and contamination um, would be the Pfizer one, I think. And I think that that one has the stronger potential for breaking holes in this uh, immunity that they have. What a shit show. Mm -hmm. So so let's just say hypothetically they, they pull out, you know, so many lawsuits, they end up rolling class actions. They say they have to put a halt to that, but then what? They're just going to, they're going to clean it up and make sure that it's, um, I, I don't know. I'm trying to picture moving forward here, how they're going to convince people to take, take follow-up jabs, you know? Good question. Good question. I mean, we'll have to see because, um, you know, another issue is obviously the compromise of our court systems, these liberal court systems all over the country and trying to actually make headway in them. So um, we're just going to have to monitor it and see how it goes. But I just think that if we just have a flood of lawsuits, the higher the chances are that we're going to get some wins. Yeah, that'll be problematic for them. Yeah. I agree. All right. Goodness. So moving on to the next topic, I know that you caught this 60 minutes and you just had a, you know, a couple things to say about it on Five Eyes Intelligence and China. Yeah, so it was it was pretty short. It was probably a total of maybe 18, 20 minutes and uh, at least the clips that I pulled up, I pulled up there over on 60 Minutes. So basically, you know, it's very cringe having to sit through and listen to Ray 
And, uh, but it's the first time five eyes is coming together to, to do an interview. And, um, I thought it was important to at least watch and see what narrative they're trying to put out. And so the narrative is primarily, you know, obviously focused on China and their tech and their threats to other countries with their espionage. And Ray said, you know, the scale of theft is unprecedented by China and that they have uh, 2000 active investigations going on. They were asked about, you know, the acquisitions of land and uh, companies and setting up strategic locations for spying in the very in the country five, five different countries five eyes being U.S. Australia Canada U.K. and New Zealand and um, they all pretty much nodded their heads a couple of them spoke and said yes yes that is that's definitely happening and we're keeping our eyes on it and they're doing their best to block that type of stuff and uh, Ray described China as the Autocracy and oppressive regime of East Germany combined with cutting edge tech of Silicon Valley. And so basically what what I was left kind of feeling about this is potentially they might, I mean, obviously a lot of what they said is, is factual. We do know this goes on with China, of course, and I'm not, I'm not downplaying that or saying there is not a threat from China because there is, but I feel like the idea of the five of them coming out, it just makes me wonder, you know, China being a part of BRICS, BRICS expanding, um, alerting people to this um, to potentially raise more surveillance on us and potentially setting the stage for something incoming that they're going to try and blame China on. I don't know. That's kind of the overall feeling I got out of it. Right. With these guys, you, you can't read. You can't take a thing that comes out of their mouth at face value you have to read between the lines like what is their motive right 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 and so yeah i mean I, to me uh, i didn't watch it but i would obviously think that it has something to do with setting the pretext for what they want which is world war three against china and russia allied with them and iran allied with them so, I, yeah, it seems like there's a lot of motivations there. It just seems like they're setting the stage for what the deep state, including all of these Western countries, deep states, want, right? Right, right. So I want to talk about, uh, this one's going to take me a bit. I'm going to read as fast as I can. And because I, I feel like this is pretty important. Um, so, so Walmart's been very busy. They've been busy for quite some time getting involved with, you know, land conservation and uh, sustainability. And we've got one of them is chair for the Fast Payments Council uh, with a specific focus regarding QR codes because, you know, Walmart's been at that for, I believe, almost like a decade now on doing payments through the QR codes. And so they're they're very involved in a lot of this and i can look at this and from one hand i go oh this is great regenerative regenerative farming right now here we're talking regenerative agriculture but it, it's a it's a little alarming to me i just want to keep my eyes on it because i could see this as a new way they're going to go across the country and bring farmers into this program, so to speak. Uh, so, so let me just show you what they're doing. So 
back in July, they announced that they uh, partnered with Pepsi in a seven-year collaboration to pursue $120 million worth of investments focused on supporting U.S. and Canadian farmers in their pursuit to improve soil health and water quality. By establishing and scaling financial, agronomic, and social programs, it aims to enable and accelerate the adoption of regenerative agriculture practices on more than 2 million acres of farmland and deliver approximately 4 million metric tons of greenhouse gas emission reductions and removals by 2030, roughly equivalent to the amount of electricity needed to power 778,300 homes for one year. See, this is this is all under the, the uh, sustainability, the climate, the greenhouse gas emissions, that type of thing. Whereas, yes, regenerative farming is great. <laughs> right. It's, you know, so commenting on the voluntary adoption of regenerative agriculture practices, Jeff Huffman, owner and operator of Island Farms LLC in Ma- in Maxwell, Neb- oh, Nebraska. Nebraska. Okay, I'm like, what? <laughs> Nebraska said, from my perspective, embracing regenerative agriculture is essential. It's good for farmers, not only because it's beneficial to the environment and our food quality, but also for the profitability of our businesses. If you use less fertilizer and you grow a bigger crop, or if you use less water and can still grow the same size of crop, it strengthens your farm in a way that benefits the bottom line and our environment for generations to come. Okay. Farmers know their businesses better than anyone else. And what we hear from them is that for regenerative agriculture to make business sense, three things need to happen. They need economic support, social and cultural support, and agronomic support. The strategic collaboration with Walmart will advance our shared goal to have farmers' backs as they transform farming in a way that benefits the planet and people. Okay, they're looking to create a model that others can mimic across the other product categories, including encouraging additional investments in regenerative agriculture by other brands. So this is like this new model starting, right? Where Big Corp is going out and overseeing and telling farmers how to do these things. Then we have, uh, let's see, so Pepsi, Pepsi's uh, business and its ability to meet its ambitious PEP plus goals, which includes driving the adoption of regenerative agriculture practices across 7 million acres by 2030 and reducing absolute emissions by more than 40% across the entire value chain by 2030, while striving toward net zero emissions by 2040. So Walmart wants to accelerate the adoption of regenerative practices in line with its goal to protect, restore, or more sustainably manage 50 million acres of land and 1 million square miles of ocean by 2030, along with the Walmart Foundation. So now if we go to the next tab, in October, just a week ago, they partnered with General Mills and Sam's Club. And they've announced a collaboration today to accelerate the adoption of regenerative agriculture on 600,000 acres in the U.S. by 2030. Uh, This represents the approximate number of acres General Mills engages to source key ingredients for its products sold through Walmart and Sam's Club. Initial projects will be supported through grants administered by the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation and seeks to advance regenerative agriculture outcomes across a variety of crops, including wheat 
in the northern and southern Great Plains. So efforts will target seven U.S. states in the northern and southern Great Plains, including North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, Colorado, Minnesota, which is home of General Mills headquarters. Through the program, NFWF will provide financial assistance to local grantee organizations, building out the education and coaching resources needed to help accelerate regenerative agriculture. Hard note on education and coaching. The objective is twofold, support the transition to regenerative agriculture production in the U.S. through systems change and elevate the potential for more resilient yields for farmers through efforts that will help improve soil health, watersheds, biodiversity, climate change, and farmer economic resilience. It also puts General Mills on pace to exceed its goal uh, of advancing the adoption of regenerative agriculture on 1 million acres by 2030. See, we all, we all have these wonderful millions and millions of acre goals here. Now, if we go to the next one by Sustainability Magazine, they point out that with certain regenerative principles in place and the support from the public to reduce consumption, Farms are known to provide higher quality goods that are nutritionally beneficial. So they talk about these partnerships and how great this is going to be and how well we need to eat less meat. And then they put together this little chart here showing what we need to get down to because we consume mostly meats, eggs, and nuts is like the top category. And then grains, and then it drops down vegetables, dairy, fruit. So they're saying, we're going to have to cut the meats, the eggs, and the nuts down, guys, especially those meats. And they go on to say, Walmart's net zero emissions target is set for 2040 and will be driven by a number of investments into clean energy, providing 100% renewables to its facilities by 2035. The path to net zero in scope three requires further action to support its partners, suppliers, and customers to deliver on their own emissions targets. When it comes to securing the food supply chain, Walmart dedicates much of its support to preserving land for regenerative projects and in investing in uh, deforestation-free product sourcing, which was recognized as one of the key downfalls of the meat supply chain, limited space resulting in deforestation. Now, I don't know if they're talking about limited space on their particular land they purchased or limited space in the country. I'm guessing it's the latter, which is a joke. So I'm looking at it and I'm going, well, what the hell is scope three? So if you go to the next tab, because they're saying in scope three, that's going to involve customers, you know, having to lower their own emissions with throughout this whole three scope program. And this they refer to, if you scroll down to project gigaton, <laughs> because Oh, let me make sure I'm on the right spot here. Hang on. I have all these sections highlighted. Because most emissions in the retail sector lie in product supply chains rather than in stores and distribution centers, such as uh, such indirect emissions are referred to as scope three emissions. We started Project Gigaton in 2017, our initiative to engage suppliers in climate action along with NGOs and other stakeholders. Project Gigaton aims to reduce or avoid 1 billion metric tons of greenhouse gas emissions from the global value chain by 2030 by inviting suppliers to set targets and take action in six areas, energy use, nature, waste, packaging, transportation, and product use and design. 
The Project Gigaton platform includes a variety of resources, including calculators to help set and report on goals, best practice workshops, and links to additional resources and initiatives. More than 4,500 suppliers have already signed on. And since the effort launched in uh, 2017, suppliers have reported a total of 574 million metric tons of avoided emissions. Isn't it grand? They're already halfway to their goal. <laughs> and, and then they go on to say that Walmart U.S. announced plans to purchase 1,100 Ford E-Transit electric vans in 2022 and has reserved 5,000 bright drop electric delivery vans, which will hit the road as early as 2023. So they focused on one of the other areas on their whole, like the long haul with a big focus on the long haul, right? Long haul truckers. So Deloitte, I recently read in one of their lovely white papers that in just, uh, let's see, where do I have that? I have that here somewhere. Ah, Using carbon offset, nope, nope, that's the wrong one. Shoot, I don't have this one written down over here. Well, point is, <laughs> they're planning on getting, I don't remember the number now. I actually have it in my notes somewhere on my desk. But but Deloitte is projecting like a massive, massive reduction in uh, long haul truckers because they're planning on, you know, electrifying it all and doing autonomous and all that good stuff and removing them from the roads so yeah good luck not, uh, all i mean you that, see, all of you that see the such... direction i'm going with all of this right well yeah it was a lot of word salad just yep. to say that we're consolidating the entire supply chain starting with the farmers and we're gonna give all these kinds of regulations and requirements and all under training. the guise of workshops and economic support and education and initiatives we're gonna make your farms better and um and you're gonna have to abide by all of our rules and convert over to this climate deal and like i said regenerative farming is great it's all the other things they're going to add on top of that that concerns me and that's going to potentially put the smaller guys out of business right and then that's going to be a roll down like they've already stated you know where consumers now come into play where with having to track their emissions so mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and as far as yeah. electrifying the entire trucking <laughs> industry <laughs> um on shipping foods uh, I, that just seems so far-fetched to me i know um with know. the with the real issues that we have on the supply of these rare earth minerals to get to create these batteries the domination that china has in that realm and um it, it just to me when you're putting something as important as trucking that supplies to the food chain like to right. our food supply um it really is a huge weakness in the food supply chain if mm -hmm. you're going to be depending on something like that so yeah um, and remember this is a model program so they want other brands to get involved in this so i'm sure we'll start seeing that and i think this is they're they're in a path to um take over and sort of transform that industry i don't like it 
Well, it, really, it sounds more like collapse the farming industry, the, the small farming industry, and consolidate it is what they want to do and create all kinds of supply chain issues, all kinds of food shortages in the process. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. And now we move into, <laughs> are we on to the UN? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is going to be too much to read. Um. All right. So I've been keeping my eye on the UN because I've been waiting to see, you know, there's a lot of battles going on in multiple countries right now. They're really amping things up, really pushing for this third world war. And I've been waiting, I've been paying attention to what the UN, their language, because I know that they're going to want to come in at some point, right? Because that's what they do. So under the guise of bringing peace and security. And so Zelensky puts out this tweet on the 24th, which was the 78th year of the UN. I had to hammer them several times on there. (laughs) (laughs) On that, uh, because they've literally had uh, protections operating outside the law since their inception for all 78 years. So Zelensky says the UN's role in preserving international peace and security has never been more critical The world has long debated UN reform. The time to act is now and the steps are clear. Reforming the veto, strengthening the UN Security Council's accountability and representation, as well as enhancing the role of the General Assembly. This autumn in New York, I presented Ukraine's vision of ways to strengthen the UN and its capacity, da 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 da. So we have this little one and a half minute clip that we don't need to play. Um, So, what this is about, and I did not have time to read this entire thing, um, but I wanted to get the the gist of where they're going with this. And this has been something they've been working towards for a long time, uh, but they're now basically utilizing these wars to try to, you know, push it into full gear. And so the peace and security... This is the United Nations Security Council. Let me just give you the quick little brief description here. So it has primary responsibility for the maintenance of international peace and security. It has 15 members and each member has one vote. Under the Charter of the United Nations, all member states are obligated to comply with council decisions. And I believe we have 193, right, member states involved? So the Security Council takes the lead in determining the existence of a threat to the peace or act of aggression. It calls upon the parties to a dispute to settle it by peaceful means and recommends methods of adjustment or terms of settlement. In some cases, the Security Council can resort to imposing sanctions or even authorize the use of force to maintain or restore international peace and security. So... They deem themselves to be like the top dog of the UN, one of the very you know most important ones here. So the Carnegie Endowment, and this is from, uh, when's this from, Edge? The, uh, June t- 28th, 2023. June, okay. So what the Carnegie Endowment did, if, if you, yeah, go up to the headline again, because I have my page set different. Okay, so they decided they're going to put together if you scroll down a little, sorry, they're going to put together to 
illuminate the shifting diplomatic landscape, 15 scholars from around the world address where the UN Security Council can be reformed and what potential routes might help realize this goal. And so I've highlighted a lot of key points here because for one, there's just some interesting nuggets in this, but also it just kind of shows the mindset of where they're going. Um, you've, you've got the, uh, sorry, let me find my other notes. Notes, notes everywhere. So you've got the P5, right? You have the permanent members of the Security Council, which is the US, China, France, Russia, and, U and UK. And they are the ones that have the veto powers. So if one of them says no go, it's no go. And so they're like the ultimate authority on this. And there's been this battle for a long time of wanting to bring in more members or wanting to wanting, you know, permanent members and also wanting to give some veto powers. And of course, you know, that's a no, 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 we can't do that. And so, well, how else are we going to reform this? Because not everyone's abiding by this. And, you know, we're falling apart. We need to, you know, we can see with the Ukraine and Russia war and yada, yada. So let me just read a few segments from this. A deteriorating status quo is the most likely outcome. International institutions are notoriously impervious to fundamental change. Once established, they create entrenched interests committed to the status quo. Accordingly, transformational change in world politics is most likely in the aftermath of catastrophes. When a major crisis wipes the slate clean, weakens attachment to existing arrangements, and encourages actors to consider novel norms, rules, and frameworks, it is no coincidence that the Security Council and the UN itself emerged after the bloodiest war in world history. I could get into a whole segment on that, but I won't. The relevant question today is whether the war in Ukraine is a sufficient geopolitical shock to bring about another moment of creation. More contributors to this compendium believe it of this little compendium believe it is not. Rather, they anticipate that the status quo will persist at the cost of declining council performance and legitimacy. And so this, obviously being in June, uh, preceded what we're seeing going on right now with Israel and Palestine. Okay, so they're wanting to bring in, uh, there's sections on about 15 different countries here, and they're really wanting to bring in, several of them are wanting to bring in Africa to the table and say they deserve, you know, they deserve a um, a seat at the table here. Not as a veto power, but at least, you know, a seat at the table here. And um, I'm just going to skip through some of this because otherwise we'll be here forever. Let me scroll. Hang on, I got to get to my next highlight. A lot of countries in here. It's a very long document. I know. I'm, I've been scrolling and I'm only in like, <laughs> not even a quarter of the way through <laughs> i'm getting there okay so down to russia these are just some key nuggets that i wanted to pull out so they say but despite its many accomplishments this is in regards to russia it's many accomplishments over more than 75 years the council has often failed to fulfill its assigned task of maintaining peace it's effective functioning uh depends on the quality of relations of the degree of trust among the p5 any amendment to the un charter requires this isn't actually pertaining to rust this is in general any amendment to the un charter requires the consent of all p5 members 
as well as two thirds of the entire UN membership. And so what they've seen is if like one of the those members, again, being US, China, France, Russia, UK, vetoes it, that stalls them out. Um, hang on, because I have a whole other document. Do, 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 do. Where did I highlight everything? I feel like my highlights vanished. Okay, down on the United States. Uh, so, so U.S. President Joe Biden's administration says it wants U.N. Security Council reform, and the council plainly needs it. The question before us, U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Linda Thomas-Greenfield told U.N. General Assembly delegates in November 2022, is whether we will defend an outdated status quo or reform the Security Council and empower the U.N. to take on the challenges of the 21st century. Uh, permanent members' willingness to block multilateral action on crisis in Syria, Myanmar, Israel, and Palestine, and elsewhere has prolonged human suffering and reinforced the Security Council's enduring reputation as a mere forum for greater power interests. The fact that the Security Council only works when the P5 want it to work underlines its unfairness and rigidity. Likewise, a Russian veto killed a resolution backed by 113 UN member states, the second highest total in UN history, identifying climate change as a threat to international peace and security. So in other words, as an example, when Russia vetoed that, that shot that down. And so, so a lot of this talk is about these power moves that the P5 are making and, and the control they have over the Security Council and these moves they're wanting to make, these reforms they're wanting to do that they've talked about for a long time. But like I said, with the wars amping up, they're now like getting more serious about this. And um, let me just read some more points I highlighted here. So the more they violate their, the Security Council's fundamental biases pose a problem even for the P5, endangering their exclusive status under international law. The more they violate their legal obligations, the more they undermine the reciprocity on which international law depends. Russia's invasion of Ukraine, nearly 20 years after the US-led invasion of Iraq, reveals this to be a reoccurring problem. Uh, in April 2022, the General Assembly passed a resolution requiring any P5 state to explain its use of the veto to the General Assembly. There was also another parallel initiative about to exercise voluntary restraint of their veto use in case in cases of mass atrocity. So in a historic first, Biden himself also endorsed the uh, Permanent Security Council seats for Latin America and the Caribbean during his 2022 General Assembly address. The charter has only been amended five times since 1945, and the process requires approval from two-thirds of the UN's membership and each of the P5. Uh, Russia has already said it will not agree to any reforms that would erode the P5's formal veto power, include, including by extending it to others. The success will require the United States to stop using its veto to shelter its allies, notably Israel, and to cede leadership on some gridlocked conflict situations to other member states. And they close with the Security Council is a flawed, unjust, and, and anti-democratic institution whose shortcomings are baked into the structure of contemporary multilateralism. 
As its legitimacy wanes, the temptation and incentives for dissatisfied countries to bypass it are likely to become greater and more understandable. Addressing this legitimacy crisis is thus imperative since there is no substitute multilateral venue for global coordination on critical questions of international peace and security. Without the Security Council, even nominal fidelity to norms of peaceful conflict management, individual rights, and the protection of civilians could fall away. Even if its most powerful organ remains uh, unreformable, changing diplomatic practices can still change the Security Council. So I find all this very interesting in the scope of where we're at right now. It's like it's like they're trying to gain more power within the UN to, uh, you see what I'm saying, Edge? There's like this power struggle Yes. of, uh, it's interesting, <laughs> it's mm -hmm. very interesting to watch because it's very significant. We're talking 193 member states here. And even though they don't all necessarily abide um, by everything that, the UN stipulates, but but look, if you go to the next tab and you look at the Security Council's press releases, I'm not going to get into these, but I mean, this gets into, you know, uh, financials, uh, sanctions, they have the ability to sanction, humanitarian aid, obviously narrative control, um, and, and, and coming into any country, you know, to do certain things to bring peace and security and as we noted to bring force if they deem necessary and so now there's this power struggle going on at the top in there over this um veto power and everything and i just find all this very fascinating it is and you have to be careful because you know it's obvious that they're trying to vie for power amidst the geopolitical situation it almost creates this motive to exploit geopolitical situations around the world in order to gain more power mm -hmm. and i think that's obviously the goal for the globalists um then you have dissenting voices like you just said such as russia that are in the part of the un security council thwarting those um those globalist types of moves to gain for the UN to gain more power um, and also to, you know, uh, also thwarting um, attempts, you know, to um, ostracize Russia, right, um, amidst this war with Ukraine um, right. on in the in the global globalist UN setting. Um, so, yeah, there is like power struggles in within, but there's also this power struggle of the UN itself trying to gain power um, amidst these wars and humanitarian crises. Mm -hmm. So interesting to see how it plays out. But I know that they're trying to gain more power with more, I guess, language drafting more language that has more teeth kind of like the, right. the, the world health organization is doing just prior to the 2024 election so you can see kind of this timeline playing out um 
as far as plans that the UN has, plans that the World Health Organization has, and how that lines up with both the 2024 election and also these wars that are breaking out and have the potential to really develop into World War III. So yeah. a lot on the horizon, and you can see all of these um, all of these factors, all of these puzzle pieces coming into place, can't you? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's 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 crazy. There's so many layers to this and you have to look in so many different areas to get the full scope. It's just like, yeah. like the one I'm working on that I asked you to help me with stats on because of a, a pattern I noticed um, that also plays a significant role in this strategy of all of this. So it's just a lot going on simultaneously right now. Yeah, speaking of a lot going on, um, one last topic to cover uh, before we close this podcast out, and it's on a positive note. Um, so <laughs> um, the the drama over who's going to take over the House Speaker position is finally over. The House elected a Speaker, Mike Johnson, this week. I'm going to get into the details about who Mike Johnson is in a sec, but I wanted to first recap on the behind-the-scenes sabotage of the Speaker candidates by Kevin McCarthy. Turns out that McCarthy, ever since he was ousted, had this secret coalition based on backdoor deals hmm, hmm. to thwart each of these speaker nominees up to this point. And his covert plan was to stall and delay and thwart the speaker elections until finally he was the last man standing to take back control of the position. And he and his plans were finally outed during a closed-door GOP meeting for the Speaker nominee after Emmer stepped down uh, when, a when a proposition was raised for a roll call vote for Mike Johnson, meaning a vote that would be not anonymous. And McCarthy objected to that. He didn't want it to be uh, <laughs> you know, known who was voting for what. He wanted it to be anonymous. And um, as McCarthy was stalling the nomination for Mike Johnson, his lackey, the temporary speaker, Patrick McHenry, McHenry sorry, went down to the House floor to adjourn the vote um, on the floor until noon the next day, meaning he was giving McCarthy more time to build a coalition against Mike Johnson by cutting backdoor deals. So uh, McCarthy was trying to stall and cut backdoor deals um to to thwart johnson's election uh but the plan by mccarthy was to um disrupt mike johnson's election for speaker by having compromised house republicans do write-in votes for mccarthy as speaker with jim jordan holding some sort of meaningless position as deputy speaker to maintain just to maintain appearances <laughs> And McCarthy got 43 votes during the behind-the-closed-doors anonymous voting session, but when it came to the roll call, meaning every Republican had to publicly vote, McCarthy got zero votes, and Mike Johnson mm. won the nomination and the election on the House floor the following day. So uh, in the end, McCarthy was exposed as the uniparty D.C. swamp creature that thwarted the <laughs> speaker nominations for the past three weeks. And we now have a MAGA conservative as the head of the House. And the D.C. Uniparty cartel is frothing at the mouth about <laughs> it, which is just glorious. Um, I'm going to read I don't some. Know, I don't know a whole lot about Mike Johnson. So yeah, I didn't. 
I've seen him before. He's been from what I've liked, from what I've seen, I've liked. I've researched him, and I'm going to get into some details about, about his voting record. But just to to read some of the headlines here, new U.S. House Speaker tried to help overturn the 2020 election, raising concerns about the the next one. Uh, here we have Washington Post opinion as House Speaker Mike Johnson is is as dangerous as Jim Jordan. And then it goes on to say, if you're feeling any sense of relief that Jim Jordan won't be the next House Speaker, stop and worry again. The new House <laughs> Speaker, Rep. Mike Johnson, might be more dangerous than the firebrand Ohio Republican. That's and hilarious. this one from the from the Guardian, Mike Johnson helped Trump on January 6th. Now he's a threat to democracy. <laughs> so. Lord. Everything I need to know about Mike Johnson in the um, hit pieces by the mainstream media, but there's more. So who is Mike Johnson? Well, I can give you a little bit of details on him. He's a constitutional lawyer, a man of deep faith and conviction, and a MAGA conservative. Here's some details on his record. Mike Johnson was one of the House representatives who voted against certifying the fraudulent 2020 results for Joe Biden. This is significant because Johnson's going to be Speaker of the House presiding over the certification of the 2024 election, which is why Democrats are so nervous. <laughs> and Johnson played a key role in the Big Texas lawsuit against election fraud in key states, including Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. That lawsuit was shot down by the Supreme Court, which is total BS, but Johnson was clearly on the right side of history in that effort. Uh, yeah. Mike Johnson served on Trump's legal defense team for both impeachment trials, and he has a strong record on conservative values, including, including fiscal responsibility and social issues. For example, he received an F on his scorecard by the Rhino Uniparty group called GOP for Fund for Ukraine. This is uh, the Republicans for Funding Ukraine uh, because Johnson voted only for for the first funding package to Ukraine and then against all other funding packages. So he's against more funding for Ukraine. And that's one reason why we should be supporting this guy. (laughs) So that tells me a good deal about him. Also, he's staunchly uh, pro-life and against transgender treatments for children and has consistently voted that way. That's why Planned Parenthood has given him the lowest possible scorecard of zero. That's which, hilarious. Which means I, I didn't like even him. know. I didn't even know they did scorecards. Good yep. lord. <laughs> oh, this world. And on the opposite end of the spectrum, the National Pro Life um, uh, scorecard has given him an A plus uh, for his voting record on protection of life. He's co-sponsored bills like the Heartbeat Bill, uh, the Protecting Pain Capable Unborn Children from Late Term Abortions Act, and a bill he sponsored um, to stop federal funding for schools indoctrinating children with sexualized material and transgender ideology. So a lot that I agree on with this guy. um, And long story short, Mike Johnson is infinitely better than McCarthy for the position of Speaker of the House. I mean, he's not perfect. In fact, I think that he got a uh, C score from Liberty score, uh, 74% 
Liberty score. So, um, you know, I'm probably not everything that I agree on with his voting record, but light years away and ahead of uh, McCarthy as speaker. And now, from, go ahead. I was going to say, I didn't listen to his speech. Did he say anything he plans on delivering on? I didn't listen to the full speech either, but it was about restoring American values and conservative values and constitutional values. What about J6? Um, I think that uh, per Matt Gates, he's committed to releasing J6 tapes. Okay. Yep. And um, also, um, so yeah, going forward, uh, one, one last tidbit about behind the scenes stuff. I'm hearing that McCarthy's arms. Yeah, he's not done. He's got a, a campaign behind the scenes to sme smear Mike Johnson and get his leadership role off to a bumpy start. So we should expect to see more hit pieces on Johnson as the D.C. Uniparty tries to destabilize, destabilize his leadership role. But going forward, um, what we should be looking for from the House um, under Speaker Mike Johnson is, number one, separate spending bills, not continuing resolutions, not an omnibus. Number two, we need to see <clears throat> uh, on Biden's $100 billion spending bill, that needs to be broken apart and killed. Um, remember, the spending bill, the $100 billion, was $60 billion going for Ukraine, $10 billion for Israel, and billions more going for funding the border invasion, um, helping to, to bus and fly um, illegals all over the country and pay for their hotels and stuff. <laughs> And thirdly, we need to see from this oh. um, from this new house led by Johnson is serious legislation on stopping the border invasion uh, before anything else gets passed. And I know that you know the the Senate's the compromise. I mean, it's it's run by the Democrats. We don't have the the presidency, so obviously going to be difficult to get things done. And if efforts get curbed uh, to curb spending and protect the border get thwarted by the Senate, the House really just needs to stand their ground and let the federal government shut down. I mean, I think that it's better than out-of-control spending bills, don't you? Yeah, I... I uh, this whole situation at the border is very frustrating. Very frustrating. I... I know you and I were talking about it yesterday. I'm like, I want a FOIA, every camera, camera, every satellite image, everything. So, because we want real numbers, you know, we don't get the real numbers. It is millions and millions and millions. And they certainly don't tally it up by specific areas they're coming in through. So it's very vague. Um, something needs to be done about it. Mm -hmm. Like yesterday. Yep. Like years ago. Yep. So that's very frustrating. It's very frustrating, um, and uh, definitely under the McCarthy uh, speakership, we didn't have any hope of getting anything done. I have some hope. Um, I, I'm feeling more positive with Mike Johnson in that role, um, but we proof is in, in the pudding. We're going to have to see how the next couple of weeks rolls out mm -hmm. um, because they're trying to slam through a bunch of bills. Um mm -hmm or a continuing res resolution or an omnibus so um and then the, this hundred billion dollar supplemental bill to fund ukraine israel border invasion all kinds of crap uh -huh. so we'll see how mike johnson handles this and how the house stands their ground um on some of these key issues
because yeah. I, honestly the the country is co teetering on collapse with the unsustainable spending levels and with the border invasion and if those two things don't yep. get taken care of we're not going to have a country anymore for much longer so right. it has it's a, it has to be immediate priority to cut the federal spending and it starts by no continuing resolutions no omnibus single item spending bills things get slashed deep cuts get in all sorts of areas and um Definitely, we need to focus on bills for strengthening the border. Yeah, and it'll be so much easier to report on single bills instead of these giant, massive 1,500-page ones, right, Edge? <laughs> oh, Lord, help me. Yes. <laughs> All righty. Back to work I go. All right. Well, guys, thanks so much for joining us. We had a lot to cover today. Please be sure to share this podcast. We're on BitChute, Foxhole, Gab TV, iHeartRadio, Odyssey, Pilled, Rumble, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn. No longer on YouTube, so be sure to subscribe to our other channels, and we will see you back next time right here on Dig It. <laughs>